This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 28. Less than two weeks from today, on Saturday, May 6th, 2023, the United Kingdom will celebrate the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. The coronation ceremony will see the king crowned at Westminster Abbey in London by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And when the day arrives, Charles will not be wearing a smashing suit or a brilliant black tie tuxedo. Those are both British adjectives, I'll have you know. No, even that attire would fall short of the occasion. He will wear royal coronation regalia, clothes fitting for the office and the occasion. A few of the items that will accompany the king-to-be during this procession include the sword of state, symbolizing royal authority, along with three other swords representing the monarch's roles in military, in justice, and in faith. There's also St. Edward's staff, which was forged of pure gold in 1661. But wait, there's more. The sovereign orb, two sovereign rings, and a pair of sovereign scepters will be in tow. The oldest ornament is the silver coronation spoon used in 1349. That was a long time ago. Of course, on top of his head will be placed the crown jewel of jewels itself, the imperial state crown made of gold set with 2,868 diamonds, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 269 pearls, and, for good measure, four rubies. The regalia worn at the coronation ceremony is fitting because of the office of the person and the occasion that it's being worn at. Now, for a moment, would you imagine with me that the first act of the new king, after being crowned, would be to take the 3 p.m. flight out of Heathrow, arriving at the greatest airport in the world, DFW. And then, uh, the next day, Lord's Day, May the 7th, he, during our Sunday service, the monarch just walked through the back door there with his golden spurs and multiple swords and scepter and crown and just walked down the middle aisle here and just popped into the second row in full regalia. He would stand out, wouldn't he? Would you notice that? Everything about him would command our attention, reminding him of his office, reminding us of his office or, or who he is and what he represents. Our passage today describes an ordination ceremony of priests who served in the royal presence of Yahweh himself. Like the king of England, there was a certain wardrobe that was fitting for the office and the occasion of their priestly work before God, complete with a golden crown, brilliant robes, jewels, fit for a king. And if one of these priests mentioned in this chapter 
again, walked in the back door of Boyer Elementary Cafeteria and sat down, he would command our attention immediately. And this is the point. These clothes and this ceremony we read of in Scripture may seem foreign to us today, but the purpose of all of it is to point our attention to the glory and the beauty of Christ. Ultimately, these clothes and the priest who wore them wore out and gave way to Jesus, the great high priest who is clothed forever in the praise of angels and all of the redeemed. And so let's not leave here thinking about ancient clothes and brilliant jewels, but what they point to, the glory and beauty and majesty of Christ himself. The instructions contained in Exodus 28 and 29 detail a majestic ordination ceremony and uh, highlight these priests who would minister to the Lord in the tabernacle. It also describes their wardrobe. I want to show you the theological significance of why so much attention in Scripture is given to these priests of old and ultimately how they foreshadow the final priest to come. We'll outline our sermon under three headings. First, the role of the priests. Second, the garments of the priest, specifically one, the high priest. And then finally, the ordination of the priests. Along the way, I want us to see and feel the heart of the priest that beat for his God and in an ideal situation for his people. Would you stand with me once more? As we read together, two portions of our text, we're looking at verse, both chapters 28 and 29. I'll read chapter 28, 1 to 4, and then 29, 43 to 46. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and, and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments and consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. And now, chapter 29, beginning in verse 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them, I am the Lord, their God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I'd like to first draw your attention to the role of the priests. If we were reading the story of Scripture straight through, beginning in the book of Genesis, this is not the first time that a priest is mentioned In Genesis, Melchizedek is this priest who blesses Abraham with bread and wine in chapter 14, verse 18. 
in Exodus, only one person up to this point has been called a priest, and that's Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Yet this is the first time so much attention is given to the priests. So let's think about why the priesthood existed. The foremost role of the priests was that they served God. The idea of serving God is shot through the story of Exodus. When God told Moses he would deliver his people, it was so that they might serve and minister to and worship God alone. We heard that first in Exodus 3 verse 12. While all of Israel is given this task, Moses' brother Aaron and his sons from the tribe of Levi were uniquely set apart to help lead the worship of all of Israel. They did this by making sacrifices, by keeping the fires in the tabernacle ablaze, by replenishing oil for the lamps, by exchanging the bread each Sabbath day. They prayed, 2 Chronicles 30, 27 tells us. They sang. You might not know that, but these priests were singing ministers. 1 Chronicles 9, 33. They also were musicians. It says 1 Chronicles 15, 16. Five times we're told over the span of these two chapters that the role of the priests is to serve God. The second function was to represent God to the people. The priesthood spoke on behalf of God, both when they were teaching and also in their prophetic role within the life of Israel. Deuteronomy 33.10 says that the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his sons, were to act in a teaching role. God placed the instructions and commands and wisdom of the law in the hands of the priests, and then they taught the word of God to the people. That's the teaching role. One interesting way we see the sort of prophetic role of their office is found in their breast piece, which we'll look at in a moment. On the back of it was a pocket, and in there were two stones called Urim and Thummim. You can read of that in chapter 28, verse 30. And we don't know much about these stones, except that from them, the judgment of God was sometimes made known. When Joshua later succeeds Moses as the leader of Israel, he was to receive answers from God by means of the Urim, that's one of these stones, through Eleazar the high priest. If you want to look at that more this afternoon, you can read the book of Numbers chapter 27. Like Adam was set in the Garden of Eden to represent God as his divine image bearer. Like Israel was called to represent God to the nations of the earth. So the priests were to represent God to other nations and also to his people. The final function we'll highlight for now is that the priests represented also the people to God. They were set apart for the task of ministering to the Lord on behalf of the people. Circle that phrase in your thoughts, on behalf of. The New Testament book of Hebrews explains this. Hebrews 5.1 says, For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, haven't we seen that multiple times already in this tour of the tabernacle that we've been on? Um, 
when people came seeking atonement for sin, they didn't just strut through the east gate and walk up and slay their own bull or lamb or dove or pigeon. No, what did they do? They brought it to the priest who then made sacrifice on their behalf. The clearest picture, of course, that we have of this is on the Day of Atonement where the great high priest once a year would go on behalf of the entire nation into the burning presence of the holy God. I want to summarize this first point by saying that the role of the priests was to worship and serve the Lord. And as they did, they represented the people before God and also represented God to the people. The second aspect I want to highlight is the garments of the priest. This is chapter 28, verses 6 to 30. But I don't want to just look at these pieces of clothing, but what they point to. Before the Lord gives any instruction on the meaning of the priesthood, he tells them first what to wear. Why? Is that because these clothes were so important? Well, what we've got to understand is because of these clothes, they were then made ready to be in the presence of God. It was fitting for the office of the priest and fitting for the occasion. These garments were set aside for the sacred task of entering the presence of God. So uh, the priest would not wear these garments when he was going to see the Dallas Cowboys play on a Sunday. Even though the Dallas Cowboys were created on the eighth day. I have a t-shirt that says so much. Uh, No, and you wouldn't see the high priest rolling around in the yard with his kids playing, wearing these. No, you would only wear these clothes because they commanded attention. Remember, they pointed to God. So they would only wear them when they were ministering in the tabernacle. There are two adjectives used to describe these clothes. We read at the beginning and the end of chapter 28 using the teaching device of inclusio, beginning and ending with the same idea, calling attention. Here's the phrase, for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. It's the same language in verse 2 and verse 40. Glory and beauty. God cares about both of these things. As a matter of fact, these two words are used to describe God himself in scripture. Glory, beauty. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Our God is glorious. He is the perfection of holiness. And these garments are meant to point to his glory. They were also made for beauty. Because our God is the source of all beauty. Jonathan Edwards wrote, All the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of the being who has an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. You hear how the psalmist longed to behold the beauty of God in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked that I would seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty. The garments for glory and beauty were to point the attention to the God who is perfect in glory and beauty. For our purpose this morning, I want to really feature in our thinking three garments that only the high priest wore. 
um, the turban, the ephod, and the breastpiece. So look with those uh, with me. The turban would have included fabric to cover the head. Oh, oh, by the way, at the back of your bulletin, where there's normally space for notes, you'll find a lovely image that we also did not pay for the copyright from our dear friends at Crossway. We'll just add it to our bill. This turban would have included fabric that covered the head, but at the base of this uh, turban, or mitre as it's called, you'll notice a band of gold, like a crown, that wraps all around, and engraved in the front of that crown were the words, Kadesh Yahweh. I've got a license to use that guttural sound, by the way. Kadesh Yahweh, holy to the Lord. So this crown is pronouncing the holiness of God and also the holiness of this office set up to magnify the holiness of the Lord. We see in 2838, this crown will be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be acceptable before the Lord. Aaron stands there as a representative clothed in holiness. The next article is the ephod, chapter 28, verses 6 to 14. The ephod is a long, sleeveless apron. That's what this looks like, a long, sleeveless apron. It's made of blue and scarlet and gold linen. The materials of this ephod, they match the materials that we find in in the inner sanctuary, in the Holy of Holies. What the curtains looked like in the closest area was also on the priest's ephod. But the most significant thing is not really the fabric, but was what was on each shoulder of this ephod. You can see it there on the picture. On this vestment were two onyx stones inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Jacob, arranged in their birth order, verse 10 tells us. And then this language in verse 12 says, The high priest bore the names of God's people before the Lord. He bore the names of God's people before the Lord. So when Aaron went into the tabernacle, when he entered the presence of God, he literally carried God's people with him on his shoulders. He was representative of the entire nation. Israel, or Aaron, you could say, was Israel in the presence of God. The final article I want to highlight is the breastpiece, detailed in verses 15 to 30. This was a square piece of cloth. It matched the ephod. It was folded in half to form a nine-by-nine square that was just right on the chest, covering the heart Of the high priest. There were two rings attached to the bottom corners with a blue cord. There were two golden rings that hooked to the shoulders of the ephod with golden chains. The most important piece of this was this plate that was inset into the breastpiece with 12 stones, four rows of three each. Each of these colorful gemstones had engraved on them, again, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you have the 12 tribes 
engraved on the shoulder pieces and again over the heart. Christopher Wright points out, since Aaron represented God to the people, there was a sense in which the engraved precious stones on his shoulders and over his heart spoke of where their covenant God kept his covenant people. God carried his people on his shoulders and bore them on his heart. Have you known that to be true? God carried his people on his shoulders and bore them on his heart. And that is just what struck me when I was working through this passage over the last couple of weeks. And I think this was intentional on Moses' part as he highlights three times in a couple of verses in chapter 28, 29, and 30, the heart of the priest. In 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Verse 30, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Again in 30, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord. Don't miss this. As the high priest goes into the burning presence of the holy God, he's there to represent all of God's people. They're not nameless to him. They have names. They're a named, known people. And the heart of the priest as ordained by God, was meant to be full of love for the Lord and love for the people that God had redeemed. Now, we've, we've come back time and again in our study of the tabernacle to the book of Hebrews, and for good reason, because repeatedly, the author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is the true and better high priest. Hebrews calls Jesus, in chapter 2, verse 17, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. The same way that the priest's role, function, was to serve the Lord, so Jesus Christ, the great high priest, full of mercy and faithfulness, serves the Lord. And only one man could stand before the holy God and truly be considered holy to the Lord in all the fullness of that the sinless one who was God in flesh stood, stands before the Father representing us. When we read of how the high priest bore the names of his people on his shoulders, we think of Christ. The same shoulders that bore our sin on the road to Calvary now bear our names into the very presence of God. So when Jesus stands before the Father, he stands as our great high priest representing us. The breastpiece that held the names of God's people over the heart of the priest reminds us of how you and I, our names were on the heart of Christ as he endured the cross, bore the shame and suffering that we deserved as he lived the life that we could never live, die the death that we did deserve and was raised victoriously on the third day in order to bring us to life, everlasting life. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15 and 16 has this great promise. God says to his people, I will not forget you. 
I will not forget you. You feel forgotten by God. I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Some of you need to write that down and post that somewhere where you'll see it regularly. I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Christian, your name is engraved on the palms of his hands. Your name is ever on his heart. Not one tear that you have cried, not one day that you will live is outside of his care and watch and keep. You're hemmed in before and behind, above and below, all around. Not one day passes that he does not know you and see you and love you. And after he bore the burden of your sin upon his shoulders, and after his heart sent him to endure the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work was completely done. All of the work of salvation, the problem, your biggest problem is your sin that separates you from a holy God. And that problem has been remedied through the work of Christ. And even right now, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. He's praying for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27 tells us just that. He's praying for us, and this is why we sing, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Have you forgotten some of those simple truths this morning? Here in the parts of the Old Testament we regularly skip over. This truth comes to us. The final aspect of this priestly ministry I want to highlight is the ordination of the priests. If you read through this ordination ceremony, it looks, well, it looks nothing like the coronation ceremony you'll see on television in two weeks' time. While there are many interesting pieces of this, I want to highlight four things that I think summarize this ordination ceremony from of old. These priests are four things. Cleansed, clothed, consecrated, and then experience communion with God. Cleansed, clothed, consecrated, communion. Early on in the chapter, they're cleansed with water and washed before they enter the tent of meeting. Remember last week, we looked at the basin of water that was standing in the courts of the Lord there. And they're commanded, hey, before you enter the tabernacle, be sure you wash your hands, cleanse your feet. What you're doing is a holy thing. This cleansing represented the holiness of God and the holiness he demands in order to enter his presence. And they're cleansed. Next, they are clothed. They change out of their everyday dress and uh, their tunics and sandals are laid aside and they put on the ceremonial dress 
of the priest. They're anointed with oil and fitted to minister to the Lord. Then comes consecration. There are a series of sacrifices and offerings detailed here, including bulls and rams, bread and oil, each contributing to this consecration process. Exodus 29.33 sums it up, saying, They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat them, because they are holy. Only the priest could eat this meal. And in the eating, in the taking, they were considered consecrated. And then finally, communion with God is experienced as they feast in his presence. And haven't we seen this already multiple times? Remember in Exodus 14 as they slaughter the Passover lamb, as they share the meal of remembrance? Or how about in Exodus 19 where the elders of Israel are welcome to come and dine in the presence of the Lord? Well, here again, these priests are considered to come. They are welcome to come and feast. And then this wonderful promise at the end of chapter 29. I will meet with my people. I will dwell, tabernacle, is that word? I will tabernacle among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. Can you imagine being there for this? Remember the guy I mentioned who would come in with all this regalia suited up? Can you imagine seeing that? Being there for the beginning of this priesthood? It would be remarkable, wouldn't it? But for each of us who are in Christ, something far more remarkable has happened. I want you to see it for yourself. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I know we've looked at this multiple times, We've got to go here again. As you're turning there, I want you to remember the promise that God made in Exodus 19.6. He said, you will be a kingdom of priests. Not just some, but the whole kingdom. The people of God will be like priests to him. And now we're going to read all of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's talking about all the people of God, anyone who's now in Christ Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. By faith, you've trusted in Jesus. This is true of you. Back to the beginning. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Now that might not feel true about you this morning, but if you're in Jesus, this is what scripture says. Positionally, this has happened. A little exercise so we will all remember. I'm gonna call out one of these titles and say, who is this? And you say, it's us. So who is a chosen race? Who is a royal priesthood? Who is a holy nation? And who is a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of Christ? How remarkable is that? Not some of God's people some of the time, but all of God's people now 
clothed in this truth. Remember how I told you these priests were cleansed? They were clothed, they were consecrated, and they now enjoyed communion with God. Do you remember that journey? Now let me look you right in the eye, Trails Church, and remind you that in Christ you have been cleansed. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christian, you've been cleansed. You've also been clothed in something far greater than the jewels of the crown. You've been clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Paul says, he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The book of Acts says that you've been clothed in power from on high. You're hidden now in Christ. You've been consecrated, declared holy, not because you were worthy enough, but because God chose to call you as one of his own people and to make you something you weren't. You see, we're not a chosen race or a royal priesthood or a holy nation because of anything that we've done. Let me remind you of that this morning. It wasn't your goodness that made you these things. It was the goodness of Jesus. And now you're welcomed. You're welcome to come into the presence, into the very presence of God and commune with him, to enjoy relationship with him, both in this life and in the life to come, now in part, then in full. All of those blessings have flowed to you because of Christ. You are cleansed. You are clothed. You are consecrated. And you have the privilege of communion with God. Of course, it's not true for everybody. Those benefits are yours if you're in Jesus, but not everyone is in Christ. And so today, if you know that none of this describes you because you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of sin, I invite you in this very moment, turn from your sin your sin that has separated you from the holy God. Come and be cleansed, forgiven, washed, renewed, restored, made new. All through the blood of Christ. You see, these ancient clothes and this ornate ceremony from long ago point ultimately to the great high priest who came, who died, who rose, and who is coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the glory and beauty of Christ that you show us in it. I thank you for these promises of old that now flow to us all because of Jesus and how through your son and the precious blood that was spilled, they might be ours both now and forever. So to these ancient promises, now fulfilled in Christ, we say yes and amen.
Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 